We're walking through the book of Matthew. This is the first time you're hearing that. We're going through a sermon series called Kingdom Come. And this is a book, it's one of the Gospels, written by Matthew, who was a tax collector. And the overall purpose of him writing this letter is to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah that all the Old Testament is pointing to. Like, this is the guy right here. This is the guy that we were waiting for. And he's here. And he's come. And in fact, let me just share with you the things that he said and the things that he does. And so one of the things that we've seen walking through the scripture so far is Jesus again and again and again, he explains to people, how do you enter this kingdom, this new kingdom that he's ushering in? How do I enter this kingdom? And he's asked questions. One of them he's asked by the rich young ruler, right? He says, I'm following all these rules. Right? How do I get interested in the kingdom? He says, Jesus says, you know the commandments. He says, well, which one should I follow? And so Jesus names them off. And he says, yeah, but I've been doing that. And I'm still missing something. What am I still missing? Jesus says, here's what your problem is. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. It wasn't just a money issue saying a general rule that we should all sell what we have. What he's saying is there is one thing blocking your heart from me, which is your money. Get rid of that what's blocking your heart from me and you'll have it. And he went away disappointed. He's like, I'm not willing to do it. There's the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast, right? The wedding invitation was open to those, and they didn't want to be a part of it. And so he went out and invited somebody different. And there was a gentleman that was sitting there at the wedding. He wasn't dressed appropriately, and they kicked him out of the wedding. Why? Because he was trying to get into the wedding feast a different way. There's the parable of the fig tree or the fig tree story where Jesus goes and he says, this fig tree has no fruit. It has the appearance of somebody who was a follower. It has the appearance of somebody who was religious, but there's absolutely no fruit in their life. And so the fig tree withers, and they look at Jesus and say, what authority do you have to do these things? And Jesus says, if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. The baptism of John, did it come from heaven or did it come from man? Because if you answer that question correctly, then you'll know exactly where I came from, what I'm telling you right now. Jesus keeps telling them again and again and again and giving them an invitation. The one thing that's blocking them every time is this, their heart. Their hearts just aren't right. And so what they're doing now is they ask Jesus questions because they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to discredit his words, and they're trying to discredit his authority. And the same thing happens today. People know if you can discredit Jesus, Christianity is done. And so they'll have things like Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Right? They had children. Why? Because if they can discredit Jesus, it's done. And so it's not a new thing. You see the same thing happen today. And so today, what we're going to look at in Scripture, I call it rapid-fire questions. We're just going to keep peppering him with questions, and we will eventually trip him up in his words. Now, let me just say this. It is not wrong to ask questions. It is a very good thing to ask questions. But there's usually two intentions to questions. One of them is I truly want to understand. The other one is I'm just asking questions so I can try to trip you up to see if you really believe what you say or try to confuse you. That's what's happening today. 
There isn't an intention to understand. There's an intention to try and confuse. That's why Ravi Zacharias, Christian apologist, I shared this a couple weeks ago, what he always says is intent is prior to content. Before somebody says something, there's an intention to why they're saying it. And for them, there's an intention to why they're asking Jesus these questions. And that's what we're going to look at today. Here is the truth today. Here is the big idea today. Jesus, he always shares truth. And he does it in a culture that's antagonistic toward him. All of his responses and all of his answers always align with truth. But truth for Jesus isn't an idea. Truth is Jesus himself. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And so his responses always align with who he is and what he came to do. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Matthew 22, 15 through 46. So Matthew 22, 15 through 46. And let's just start off with prayer. Father, we just pray. God, help settle our hearts, settle our minds. Help us to focus on you. We pray that you would speak to us and just reveal to us where do we fall short. Where do we need to turn back to you and ask for your help? Where do we need to turn to you and ask for forgiveness, Father, that you would live, help us to live these things out in our life, Lord? And we just ask this and we pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, let's start with verse 15. Matthew 22, verse 15 says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And so now you have two groups, believe it or not, two groups that actually don't like each other, but they have a common purpose, which is Jesus. How do we confuse Jesus? And so on the one hand, you have the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders. On the other hand, you have the Herodians, who represent the political establishment at that time. And now they're fighting back because Jesus has exposed them time and time again. And they start off by trying to flatter Jesus, saying, we know that you are true and that you don't care what people say about you. You see, if they really believed that, then they would listen to what Jesus says. So even their own words are lies right now. And so they're trying to start off by flattering him and saying that. And they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, how many of us wish that Jesus said no? <laughs> right? It would make April 15th really, really easy for all of us if Jesus had just said, no, it's not lawful. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What they're talking about is a Roman poll tax. What that is, it was a tax by conquered people that would pay it to the Romans to finance the same Roman army that was occupying them. It's a very humiliating tax. I come to your house, I take over your house, I put you, uh, you know, as a, as a citizen of that in your own house, and then I require you to pay me a tax. That's what this is. They hated this tax. 
They hated it. And what it was, it was for men, any male between 14 and 65, and any female between 12 and 65, and they would, they would pay it per head. And in today's terms, it's $58 a year, right? Women started a little earlier because they mature a little faster than men, right? So that's why it's 12 years old, right? And this is what they would do. This is the reason why at Christmas time we talk about Mary and Joseph came back for the census because the Romans wanted to know how many people were there so we can tax you. That's what they really wanted to know. And it's the other reason why they hated tax collectors. Because tax collectors, not only was it a tax, but they would say, all right, we're going to take this Jewish person of your own people. They're going to come to you and take your money. And anything above $58 a year, they keep for themselves. And so I could charge you $100. i will pay 58 to the Roman government. I'm going to pocket $42 myself. I could charge you whatever. That's why they hated tax collectors so much. This is the tax they're talking about. And so literally, one of the commentators says this. He's literally saying, is it permissible for the people of God to express an allegiance to a pagan emperor? That's what they're asking. And so what's Jesus going to say? They've got him. Because if he says, yes, it is legal, and they're going to look at him, the, the, uh, the religious leaders are going to look at him and say, you're disloyal to God and disloyal to Israel. But if he says no, the Herodians are from King Herod's government, are going to look at him and say, you're committing treason against Rome. How is Jesus going to get out of this? And Jesus responds by saying, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? If you read the message version, it says it like this. Why are you playing these games? Why are you trying to trap me? He says this, show me the coin for the tax. <laughs> yeah? We rehearsed this for like weeks right here, all right? He says, show me the coin for the tax. Whose inscription is on this? Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What does he mean? Render to Caesar the material, temporal things that bear his image. Give to him. Who, who owns everything? Hmm? The Lord owns everything. So you can give to Caesar that which has his image. But ultimately, render to God that which belongs to God. Now, if he says to him, whose image is this? This has Caesar's image on it, and so I give to Caesar that which has his image. Who is it that has God's image on them? Go back to the very beginning. The book of Genesis says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What he's saying is, now... Whose image, who is it that has the image of God on them? And he's saying, give to God that which belongs to God. I surrender my life to him. It's not a conflict. I live my life. I can give to Caesar that which has his image. Ultimately, God owns everything. But ultimately, what I'm called to do is to render my life and everything to that whose image is stamped on me. That's what Jesus is saying right here. 
And so they're trying to confuse Jesus because they're trying to make it a conversation about possessions and about politics. And Jesus is saying, render to Caesar what Caesar's. It's okay to render to him, to give it to him. Ultimately, God owns everything, but the most important thing is to give back to God that which has his image on him. And today we get caught up in thinking you've got to do one or the other. That I, I can't give to the government. I can't give back to them. Civil government is actually a gift from God to keep order. And so I go and I render to the government the things that belong to the government, but ultimately, who am I serving? I'm serving God. So regardless of who's in the White House right now, it doesn't matter. I render to Caesar what Caesar's, but I render to God. I give my whole life to God. If I'm in a job, I render to my job with my jobs, but ultimately I give my life to God. And everything I do goes to God. I render to Caesar which belongs to Caesar, those things that are temporal and material, but I render to God that which belongs to him. Jesus is pointing to something much bigger, and he's sharing the truth of why he came here in the first place. And if the Jewish people had rendered to God that which belongs to God from the very beginning, they wouldn't have to render to Caesar anything because they would have given their life to God already. If we had rendered to God that which he created from the very beginning, we wouldn't be in the mess that we are right now. Give back to God that which is turned away from him in the very beginning. And so why do we give it back to God? Well, here comes attempt number two. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So who are the Sadducees? They are religious leaders, but they would often go head to head with the Pharisees. Why? Because this is what they believe. They denied supernatural acts. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in bodily resurrection. They denied anything that they couldn't understand in the material world. What's in the material world is all that is. And they only accepted the first five books of Moses as being authentic. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. That's it. And so they have a question about the resurrection. Literally what they're doing is they're trying to show the resurrection idea is just nonsense. And so they come up with this crazy answer, crazy question. You ever have somebody ask you a question that's so like... Unbelievable. They're trying to confuse you. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to use a ridiculous example. And so they, they give this example. And Jesus sees right through it. He says, you neither know scriptures or know the power of God. He says, first of all, when it comes to the resurrection, they're not giving in marriage. They don't marry. You're not giving in marriage in heaven. You're like angelic beings. What they're doing is they're going back to the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of those first five books. And what they're saying is, in that book, Moses says, if I'm married to my wife, 
and I die, it's my brother's responsibility to now be with my wife to give a child to continue the lineage. Well, it happened seven times, and they all died, and the wife died. So now when they get to heaven, whose wife is she? And Jesus is like, you don't understand. They're like angelic beings. They're not married in heaven. Now, for some people, it's sad. Like, I'm not going to have my wife or my husband in heaven. For some of you, you're like, right? We won't say who is who. Let's just go back to truth, right? What Jesus is saying is they're not given in marriage, nor are they married in heaven. They're like angelic beings. And he's like, that's the first thing. The second is, you don't understand the power of God. He's not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. Why? He goes back to one of the books they believe, Exodus. Exodus 3, 6, where Moses is talking to God, and God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he doesn't say, I was the God. I am the God, which means that they are still alive. They may not be here on earth, but they're still alive. And he's like, you don't understand. And Jesus is fine. Jesus uses, in each example, the books that they believe in. You don't understand. You don't know scripture, nor do you know the power of God. You see, the second application right here is that God can and will resurrect. They're trying to confuse him with their misunderstandings of the Bible, of scripture. And he always corrects them with truth. And you see the same thing today. There are people here that they believe that this is it. When you die, that's it. There's no hope. There's no future. That death has the final say. There are no such things as miracles. This is it. And then there are people who they know the Bible. They know they can quote scripture, but they don't know scripture. I heard a, an argument back and forth between uh, Ravi Zacharias, it, was, it wasn't an argument, it was a discussion. And it was a panel between Ravi Zacharias, Christian apologist, and a gentleman who was very learned. He was an atheist. He could quote scripture. But he didn't know scripture. It's possible to, to be able to, to, to spit out stuff from the Bible and still not understand what it means. That was the Sadducees. And so they're asking Jesus a question about that which they don't understand. And Jesus exposes it. If they only knew God's power in Scripture, they would see what? That God is able and that he will raise the dead. Who is he going to raise? He's going to raise his son. And ultimately, who is he going to raise? Us. You see, the beautiful thing is our relationship with Jesus is going to be a marriage. That one day that Christ is going to take us, his body of believers, as his bride. The reason why you don't have marriage in heaven is because down here, God enables us to enjoy into a relationship that symbolizes what is going to be up there. And so you see two diverse beings coming together in unity that symbolizes the diversity and unity in the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. He allows us to partake in this beautiful union. And not only that, oftentimes in Scripture, you see Jesus Christ is going to be married to his church. The reason why we don't have marriage in heaven, because ultimately what marriage is pointing to is going to be fulfilled up there. It's like going to Italy and bringing Chef Boyardee with me. Right? Why am I going to do that when I have the real thing in Italy? By the way, beefaroni is pretty good. Why do I want that? And so that's what he's saying. What is this all about, though? 
What is it all about? Here comes attempt number three. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You ever watch wrestling? I don't. But you see when one guy taps out and he taps and the other guy comes in. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees, they see the Sadducees, and they're like, oh, we're going back in again. Which is the greatest commandment? They're trying to narrow it down, because if we get Jesus to say one, then he neglects the rest of the law, and now we finally got him. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second. He's like, all the law hangs on those two right there. He's telling you the essence of the law is that. It's not just about following rules. It's all pointing to love. That's what this is all about. It's all about love. And he's like, everything that the prophets in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to love. But because of our sin, we turn it into rules. That's what we do. And he gives the example. He, go back to why we were created in the garden. How many rules did God give them? You can eat of any tree. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a love question. Do you love me enough to obey? And they were like, got it. They didn't obey. They couldn't follow one. And so Moses came and he gives them ten. And then that grows to 613. And so what Jesus does is he narrows it back down to two. The night before Jesus died, he says to his disciples, love a new commandment I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. He's taking it back to where it was from the very beginning. It was never about rules and following rules and rituals. It's always been about love. Why were we created in the first place? The third thing is, it's about love. That's what this is about. That's why you're here right now. I'm not up here to tell you about following rules. I'm here to tell you about love. It's the reason why you were created. You were created from the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was an explosion of their love, which resulted in us. You were created for love. You were created as objects for their love. And you were created to love. You were created as a loving being. Every human being has a desire to love and be loved. That's what we all strive for. That's what this is all about. And Jesus is saying, that's what this is all about. That's what these commandments are about. And so they're trying to trap Jesus into a rule discussion. And Jesus is like, let's take it higher. This is about love. It's always been about love. You know, I asked myself that question one time. I was honest with God, and I said, God, I'll be honest with you. I do not love you. I don't. If you're honest with yourself, you could be like, I don't love God. What do I do that I love God? I'm not in Scripture. I don't listen to what he says. I don't desire to spend time with him. I don't give. And I was confronted with it. I said, God, I don't love you. I said, but I want to. I don't know how. I don't know what this looks like. 
And God began to change my heart. And as he began to change me, I began to be filled up with his love. And if I'm so filled with his love, what eventually starts to happen? It starts to go out. Love goes out. And when it goes out, which commandment am I now fulfilling? I'm loving other people. When I try to love other people without the love of God, I'm trying to do it in my own strength. And quite frankly, we get on each other's nerves. We can't love each other without him. Try it. Because the first time you screw up, right, I pull back my love. I can't love without him. And he so fills me up that it now begins to burst at my scenes. And I have love for people that, quite frankly, I never had love for before. I never had love for before. That's what he's trying to say. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's pointing to the truth. In fact, that was the problem with the rich young ruler. Jesus was trying to get rid of the one thing that was blocking him from the love of God, his money. And he was like, I love my money too much. I'm not going to go there. And so he didn't have the kingdom of heaven. It's always been about love. You were created from love. You were created for love. And you were created to love. And love fulfills the law because it sums up God's commandments and motivates us to now follow him. And so now they've been peppering him with questions, and now it's Jesus' turn. Number, number 40, uh, verse 41, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, well, then how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is finally getting to the point with them, you need to answer the question of who you think I am. And he says, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said the son of David, which literally means that you have King David, that the Christ, the Messiah, is going to come from the lineage of King David. He's going to be his son. And they said he's going to be the son of David. Okay, well then how is it that David, in the spirit, when he writes one of the Psalms, what he literally says is, the Lord, which is God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David is calling him his Lord, then how is he also going to be his physical son that comes from his lineage? How is he going to do both? How is he going to both be God and human? They were like, yeah, we're done asking questions, <laughs> right? Heart. Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah. He's been doing it all throughout Matthew. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to admit who he is. Jesus always gives them an opportunity to come to him, and they don't want it. You see what Jesus is doing? He's connecting everything with an invitation. Give back to God everything, especially that which bears his image. Why? Because God can and will resurrect 
And what is he going to do that for? He does it for a relationship with the one that's all about love. They stopped asking him questions. They said, logic is not going to work anymore. We need to get rid of this guy another way. And they did. They killed him. But in their own logic, by killing him, what were they actually fulfilling? What God had sent his own son here for was to die for us on the cross. You cannot outsmart God. Jesus is truth. And he died on the cross. Why was it necessary for Christ to come? Why is Matthew trying to point people to who Jesus is? Because Jesus, from the very beginning, has been saying that I've come to restore that which was lost from the very, very beginning. Because you turned away from me, and I'm trying to bring you back to the very reason, the purpose why you were created in the first place. It ain't about following rules. It's about love. The ultimate act of love was God sending his own son to the cross to die so that we could enter back into the family and back into the fold. And Jesus Christ died and rose again to give that to us. And so now Matthew is saying, this is the guy. He's here. Turn to him. Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that those who were created and who bear his image could be raised and joined together with him forever in a relationship of love. That's why we're here. That's the privilege I get of coming up here on a Sunday and telling you. I have no interest in telling you to follow rules. I don't, but I love sharing the good news of this right here. How do you get it? You need to decide who Jesus is. You need to decide who Jesus is and surrender your whole life. Render to God that which belongs to God. Surrender your whole life to him because that's what this is all about. I told the first group, I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you this right now. Many of you have come from churches in different backgrounds. You've had different experiences in your life. If all you've ever thought about this was, if I'm a good person, I go to heaven. If I'm a bad person, I go to hell. Then I personally apologize to you because we haven't done a good enough job of explaining what this is really about. What this is really about is this. In the beginning, God created us in his image to reflect his beauty for a relationship with him. And when you create someone in your image to love, you have to give them the freedom to love. They have to have the freedom to choose. And if somebody has the freedom to choose to love you, they also have the freedom to do what? To not love you. And so that was the choice before us. And we decided very, very long ago that we were not going to do that, that we were going to live life without them. And so what you see when you turn on the TV every day is what it looks like when people choose to live apart from God. But God didn't leave us by himself. He came after us. Now, what do you do in your guy when you say, you know, on the one hand, I am a righteous judge. I have to judge sin. I have to do it. But on the other hand, I'm a loving God. How do I do both? Here's what you do. You come as a man and you take out your punishment and your wrath on sin on your 
self. That's what he did. And he says, and if you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again to forgive you of your sin, and you turn away from your sin, you admit that I've sinned, and you look and you say, I need that, you'll be forgiven. That's the entrance in the kingdom. That's the problem with the religious leaders. They won't do it. They don't think they've done anything wrong. They don't think they need it. That's what this is all about. The good news is to say, you don't have to keep trying to be a good person. Just take the free gift that he's giving us. That's why he sent his son. You don't need a savior unless you needed to be saved from something because you can't save yourself. That's what this is all about. And I live a life now in the reality of that love. When you begin to look and see all the ways that I screw up, I begin to seem like, but he still died for me. God's like, I knew this all along. Your eyes are being opened to how sinful you really are. And my love for him grows as I begin to see who I really am. And I begin to change. And his love changes me. And that's what I go out and tell the people. That's what I go out and share. This is an invitation to a great wedding for eternity with the very one who created us in his own image for a relationship of love. Let's pray.